Amen. Good morning. Today the reading will come from Revelation 21, 1 through 7. You can find it in your bulletin. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. This is the word of the Lord. been very moved by the music this morning. Have you? This is beautiful. Uh, I love <laughs> being at a church where you can hear a majestic prelude like Melinda's and then go into the song really that Keith introduced us to called Living Water and then to hear uh, I Can Only Imagine sung so beautifully. Just, just all great. Well, this is the final in a series called Hydrate or Dihydrate Jesus the living water, and uh, I, I am most grateful for your response uh, to this series. You always wonder how it's going to go over in the summer and people are in and out. Maybe it's because summer's hot and you think about water a lot and maybe that was helpful, but I really have appreciated your response to this series. And we come to this passage where Jesus reminds us really where this living water will eventually carry us, and we can only imagine how incredible it's going to be. But there's a curious sentence in this passage that David just read, and I just want to focus on the one sentence, because it seems rather strange. It doesn't even seem to fit, but it has to do with our destiny. And uh, first, though, I want to read an account of something fascinating that happened back in the 19th century. Uh, for those of you who were here Friday night, we had a marvelous production uh, that the Music and Arts Camp Kids put on. I was just amazed and what they were able to put together in four days. And it was a wonderful, wonderful musical. And I always love getting to play an old man. I'm always, I'm always old man. I was old Norman this time. But I want us to, you know, the, the, the primary prop of that whole production was a time machine. And what I want us to do is go back in time today, this morning. Go back to 1815 with a man named James Riley. And just listen to me as I read this. James Riley was a merchant captain from Connecticut who left his family and took command of a ship called the Commerce, which at the time was one of the largest and most advanced and strongest ships in the American fleet. Riley was a very experienced sea captain. He had been at sea since he was 15 years old. He knew the world's oceans very well. But on this one voyage with the Commerce, the unthinkable happened. They entered into a dark fog in the middle of the night, and they blew off course near the north coast of Africa. The commerce shipwrecked near 
Kate Bojador, and, and uh, Bajador really is a better way to pronounce it. This is an artist rendering of Cape Bajador uh, on a larger map. So you can tell it's one of those scary places in the sea that people just associate with sea monsters and all because of the storms, the breaks that, that, are, uh, that the uh, waves do and everything. Just a frightening, frightening place. And second, there's an artist rendering here of what it was like to land and be shipwrecked at Cape, Cap, Cape uh, Bajador. In the morning, the crew woke up, and they knew they were shipwrecked, but they weren't far from shore. But Riley reported that they knew they couldn't go to shore because it was filled with what he called violent savages who were picking through all the remnants of the shipwreck that had washed up on the shore. So they had only one option, head back out to sea. The problem was there were huge sea breakers about 20 feet high all along the Cape. Riley knew there was no way they were going to be able to take a lifeboat from their shipwrecked ship out to the open sea and get through those breakers. But he knew they would be eaten alive by those cannibalistic savages if they went on land. So they lowered the lifeboat and filled it with supplies. Riley and his crew members got in the boat and they started rowing toward the breakers. Now Riley was a non-religious man. In fact, at one point he was published as saying that he didn't believe that God was actively involved in the affairs of the world. But as he got closer and closer to those breakers, he told the men in the boat to take off their hats, and then Riley offered up the following prayer. Great creator and preserver of the universe, who now sees our distress, we pray thee to spare our lives and permit us to pass through this overwhelming surf to the open sea. But if we are doomed to perish, thy will be done. We commit our souls to the mercy of Thee, O God, our God, who gave them. And then Riley recorded that as he finished his prayer as if by divine command, the winds stopped and a 20-yard gap emerged in the breakers where they were able to row right through as the sea continued to roar on either side of them about 20 feet high. Sometime later, Riley wrote a book about this, about these adventures at sea, and he included this story but his publisher begged him to not include this story because it was so fantastical and miraculous that nobody would believe it. Riley basically agreed with his publisher. He knew the story didn't make sense, but he insisted on including it, and here's what he wrote back to his publisher. I cannot suppress or deny what so clearly appeared to me and to my companions as the immediate and merciful act of the Almighty, listening to our prayers and granting our petition at the awful moment when dismay, despair, and death were pressing close upon us. My heart still glows with holy gratitude for his mercy, and I will never be ashamed nor afraid to acknowledge and make known to the world the infinite goodness of my divine creator and preserver. <clears throat> well, our friend John the Apostle, whose writings we have journeyed through lately, he would concur wholeheartedly with James Riley, only God alone can bring order out of chaos. And that's really the primary point of John's book of Revelation. It's really the primary point of the entire series we've been doing on hydrate or dihydrate. Our hope is really found only in God. Our hope cannot be found in our leaders, in our wealth, in our experience, in technology, none of that. Our hope is only found in God and more specifically in his son, Jesus Christ, we're going to sing in just a few minutes the solid rock. What is it? My hope is found in nothing less but, can somebody help me? Jesus and his 
righteousness, and I found this on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Some of you young people recognize that. that I think that's right at the top of uh, Table Mountain, isn't it? Cool. You can go on the Internet and find that. Uh, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. So John would understand this experience, uh, the message of this seafaring man named James Riley. And I want us to zero in on this one sentence that you find in Revelation 21. And, and it's such an interesting, vivid image, but it's so curious. Look at verse 1 here. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. Now that's cool. And then it says, Oh, and the sea was also gone. And I learned it growing up as, And the sea was no more. The sea was no more. And I remember when I was a kid even, I thought, man, well, I love the beach. What's going on here? No more sea? And more recently, I've been on the you know, Sea of Galilee, and I've seen, seen the Aegean from, from a Greek island, and, and uh, gosh, the, the waves crashing at the team house in uh, Cape Town, South Africa. What does that mean, and the sea was no more? Because if you go to the very next chapter, Revelation 22, there's one more image of heaven, and it has the river of life in it. So there is a river, but the sea is no more. What's going on here? Now keep in mind, please, that Revelation is a form of literature. It's the genre known as apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is meant to be understood as symbolic. It's to be interpreted figuratively, symbolically. To take the book of Revelation literally actually is to be unbiblical. And we can argue about it later, and, and you can disagree with me, but I'm right on that. And... and uh, it's symbolic. That's the way God delivered it to John and therefore to us with the book of Revelation. Because, again, there's a river of life that's supposedly going to be there, but again, that's symbolic too. Will there be water there? What form will it be? I don't know. To be honest, when we get there, it, it, we won't, it won't matter. We can only imagine how great it's going to be. But what did the sea mean to ancient Jews and Jews even in Jesus' day? That's, to keep, that's what to keep in mind because they were not a seafaring people. They were not like the Phoenicians, who very much were seafaring people. Uh, ancient Jews did not like the sea, did not like the waters, which makes you realize just how courageous some of these guys who became disciples were because they had a job where they had to go out to sea. But traditionally, ancient Jews did not like the sea. They saw it as a place of, it was a realm of chaos and disorder and destruction. It was really in complete opposition to God, who was a God of what? Order and beauty and wholeness. You know, from the very beginning, Scripture points to this chaotic notion of, of the water, of, of the oceans. If you look at Genesis 1-2, what does it say? The earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep. The, you know, the sea was this endless abyss and it was dark and ominous. But then God steps in and speaks and what does he do? He separates the seas with land. He starts to bring order to things. He creates day and night, creates the sky and the ground, and it goes on and on. And, and what was a chaotic world becomes a perfectly ordered world, ultimately culminating in what? The Garden of Eden, Eden which was total order and beauty and abundance. And of course, what does he do out of love, because he wants out of his unconditional love to share it? He creates uh, the man and the woman. So this is all yours. It's all yours. Just remember who I am and who you are, and they messed up just on that one thing. That one stipulation, and they rebelled, as you know. And because of their rebellion, the earth was plunged back into chaos. 
and wound up having this tendency to move toward chaos instead of order. You know, in science, you call it the second law of thermodynamics. Things move from order to chaos when they are left alone. When they are abandoned, they just start to, to fall apart. Thank God we worship a God who's not going to abandon us, who leaves us alone, not at all. He's in the, he's in the uh, process of redeeming the world, redeeming all creation, and ultimately he will end all chaos. We know that. And again, we can only imagine just how good it's going to be. Now, there are numerous psalms that speak to God overcoming the seas, and, and really what they're saying is God overcoming the chaos. And I'll just give you a couple of examples that I really like. First of all, Psalm 93. And these are people who did not like the sea. It was the opposite of this God of order and beauty and wholeness. And in 93, the psalmist says, The floods have risen up, O Lord. The floods have roared like thunder. The floods have lifted up their pounding waves. And this is almost poetic. But mightier than the violent raging of the seas, mightier than the breakers on the shore, the Lord above is mightier than these. Beautiful, beautiful passage. God being triumphant naturally over the chaos of the world. Psalm 77 is another a good one that really is a throwback homage, if you will, to Moses and getting the people through the Red Sea. It says what? Uh, your road led through the sea. Your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. Only God could do something like this. You led your people along that road like a flock of sheep with Moses, Aaron, as their shepherds. Two beautiful passages, and there are a lot of psalms that speak to God being the God who is more powerful than chaos and triumphs over chaos, which again tells us again, that is the one in whom we can put our hope. Longer I live, and you've heard me say it, I'm quite convinced that Jesus is our only hope in this world to fool ourselves into some kind of idolatrous uh, replacing of Jesus as our only hope because of our own you know, self-consumed ways, I think is so uh, erroneous and, and tragic, really. Our hope is ultimately just in God alone. But I want to get a little more specific with this. What will no more see mean to us? What do it mean to you and me? Well, first of all, no more see means we will be forever in God's presence. Gone will be separation. Now, again, the sea was a symbol, a chaotic symbol, if you will, of separation for one thing. I'm sure when John saw this vision of Jesus, and he says the sea will be no more, and he knows that the sea is a symbol of <laughs> separation. In fact, you know what? For John, it wasn't a symbol. Does anybody remember where John was when he wrote the book of Revelation? He was in exile on an island. I heard it. Say it. Patmos. Very good. Tuck Cornegay. I thought you were just a musician. Golly. Yes, the Isle of Patmos. And here was John, who was probably exiled from family, loved ones, fellow believers. And he needed this vision as much as anyone ever has, that God was still with him, even amidst the chaos of separation. And that's so important to him. It's, it's a symbol of separation, and yet he gets this wonderful word that I am with you, even amidst these chaotic waters, which brings me to one of my favorite passages about God overcoming the chaos, and in this sense, the chaos of separation. You go to Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2, and this is God speaking to us. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through the deep waters of chaos, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. What an incredible promise for you and me. It's not going to ultimately overwhelm you. He is with us through whatever storm at sea. <laughs> it reminds you of what? The storm at sea in the Sea of Galilee in Mark chapter 4, where the disciples wake him up and say, don't you even care 
were about to die. And he basically, the message is, have faith, relax, I'm with you in this boat. I will pass through the waters of chaos with you. Best of news. No more sea means no more separation from loved ones who follow Jesus and from Jesus himself. Secondly, no more sea means we will triumph over suffering and death. All form of suffering and death itself itself will be gone. You know, right now, we live in a very water-based world. Think about it. Living creatures are so dependent on water for survival. I think it's 90% of our blood is water. Gilberts, where are you? Is that about right? Okay, physicians, they're nodding their heads as if they know the answer to that. No, 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 they would know. 90% of our blood is made up of water. Our flesh is like uh, uh, 65% water. But what's amazing is when we are in our glorified bodies, as Jesus was, even though he ate fish and probably drank water or something in his risen state, he didn't need it. In our glorified bodies, we will not be dependent on water anymore. We won't require it, which is wonderful, wonderful. You know, and, and if there is that river of life that Revelation 22 talks about, that's great, but we won't have to draw from it for life because in our glorified state, we just won't need to be worried about that and death itself will be no more disease itself will be no more i love the parallel wording of a revelation 21 1 and then later on revelation 21 4 look at verse 1 the sea will be no more but you go on in advance to verse 4 death will be no more mourning and crying and pain will be no more that's what john is pointing to from the first verse there when i say the sea will be no more it means no more death no more crying no more pain can only imagine again how great that's going to be in the new creation. And I got that should give us hope in the present. And frankly, what it should do for you and me is empower us to help others who are suffering and in pain and going through some kind of chaos in their own life right now. In fact, what we can do, as John Claypool said, is be wounded healers for other people, blessing people because of the chaos that you and I have faced and seasons in our own lives. We can do that as we anticipate the suffering and pain and death no more. We can reach out to others having gone through a lot of the suffering and the pain, the chaos ourselves, which I'm reminded by that because of the rest of this story. Let's go back in the time machine back to 1815. Remember James Riley, who was delivered with his crew from the terrifying breakers on the African coast? Turns out while at sea, they ran out of food and supplies, and they had to row to an unknown African shore. He and the crew were captured by an African tribe and sold into slavery. This is a depiction of it. He spent the next year traveling through the North African desert, enslaved and treated cruelly. Now imagine this. This is an American shipman. He goes to Africa, and he becomes a slave back in 1815. Kind of a real twist there. He was enslaved and treated cruelly, beaten, put into hard labor. Riley reported that his weight went from about 240 pounds down to 90 pounds. But the difference was that he never gave up on the God whom he met while he was passing through those stormy breakers in that chaotic sea. In 1816, James Riley was eventually redeemed from slavery. And it's a crazy story that you can read about. But an Englishman named William Wilshire literally redeemed him for $920 and two shotguns. Riley ended up getting all the way back home to Connecticut, reunited with his wife and his children, and the next year he wrote a book about his experience. It's called Sufferings in Africa. It's a fascinating read, and good came from this crazy experience. There was really a Romans 8, 28 
a dynamic going on. You know if it just ended there, you'd think that Riley's captivity in Africa was unfortunate, it was terrible, and we're glad he got out. But God actually ended up taking this terrible experience and bringing good from it. The first good that came of it is that Riley changed his life and spent the remaining days of his life fighting for the liberation of slaves in America. Here he was, a white American who had become a slave in Africa. And because of that experience, he came back and realized he needed to help free the African slaves in America. And this is what he wrote. He said, adversity has taught me some noble lessons. I have now learned to look with compassion on my enslaved and oppressed fellow creatures, and I will exert all my remaining faculties and endeavors to redeem the enslaved and to break to pieces the rod of oppression. Just really incredible statement. And that's just what he did. He used the rest of his life to go to battle against the demonic act of slavery. And then in 1817, his book became a nationwide bestseller. For the first time, many white Americans were given a glimpse of slavery through the eyes of one of their own, and it transformed many of the attitudes and opinions of Americans about slavery. In fact, a young lawyer from Illinois picked up a copy of the book and read it, and his name was Abraham Lincoln. And he said that apart from the Bible, this book influenced him more than any other as far as his own understanding about slavery. And it was Lincoln who ended up liberating and emancipating the people in America. Now, I want to travel back to 2019 and bring it right back to you. Does God bring order out of your chaos, my chaos? No doubt. He really is our only hope. Now, as I close, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes if you would. And I want to ask you this question, and I want you to ask it, rather uh, answer it, just between you and your God. Here's my question. Where is there chaos in your life? What's an area where you like, feel like things are a little bit out of control? Is it a health issue? Is it a financial problem? Is it issues with transitioning, dealing with some kind of change? Is it a job? Something going on with your work? Is it a, is it a family matter that's, that could even be sensitive, but you're not sure what to do about it? Is, is it a, a, a form of personal failure or, or a habit that you're struggling with? Is it a sense of guilt over something? Is it something where you're just uncertain about the future? Is it, and we talked about this recently, just you feel spiritually dehydrated? You feel like there's an absence of God from your life? You need to be reminded that He, that he is with you as you pass through whatever waters of chaos you're going through right now, and you need your hope strengthened. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to share a silent prayer to God. In just a moment, we're going to sing about our hope being in Christ alone. He's the solid rock. I want to offer you, remind you of the best spoiler alert that you already know. Soon that struggle will be no more. Just as pain will be no more. Just as doubt and uncertainty will be no more. Just as conflict will be no more. Anxiety will be no more. Disease will be no more. Loss, failure, grief, all of that will be no more. And whatever you're struggling with at present, you can lift that struggle to the one, the one who can bring order and beauty and goodness again to your life take just a moment if you would and and in silent prayer whatever it is that's your particular burden right now and we all have them 
Whatever it is that feels a bit out of control in your life right now, will you just pray a silent prayer to God right now that you can lift that burden and give it over to Him and walk in newness of faith and hope? Lord, there's that old hymn, take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. And we leave these to you. And we lift up prayers to those other loved ones who might even be a part of this church tribe or, or some family members who are going through a particular form of hell right now where they feel more abandoned and, and angst-laden. And Lord, we, we want to just lift them up to you as well. Thank you so much that one day we will see you face to face and gather together in a place that really is beyond our thinking, beyond our capacity to even, even imagine. But until then, oh God, may we lift each other up and we lift our own particular burdens to you right now. Lay them at your feet, trusting that in newness of life we can walk anew in faith and in hope. Help us to do that now and help us to mean it in just a moment as we sing that on your son, on the rock that is him, we can stand and press forward. We pray these things in your name. Amen.